Amen, and thank you for your great singing this morning. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. Let's hear the Word of God. Dr. Davey, welcome to our pulpit. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. It's a joy for me to come and to share with you today, and a delight to to be with uh, your pastor and Janet. A real delight as well to stay the last couple of days uh, in the home of Jeff and Debbie, and uh, be able to also rub shoulders with Jim and Martha, just a number of people, and then the elders on Saturday. Uh, just was a great uh, encouragement to me. So I thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Fellowship Bible Church. And uh, I trust that as we come to the Scriptures today, our hearts will be encouraged by the truth that uh, is in two verses. So would you take your Bibles with me and turn to Second Timothy in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, well-known verses for you. But maybe I can introduce it this way, since this is the 28th anniversary together as uh, brothers and sisters in this particular fellowship. It's interesting, Martha and I came on Friday, and when we came down the street, we turned onto Daniel Road. And when we turned onto Daniel Road, we were met with an oval sign that says Fellowship Bible Church. So I was thinking about those words. Uh, there are three nouns, fellowship, Bible, church. And I wonder if we have captured, if I have captured the significance of that. When I think of the word church, the word ekklesia is a term in the Greek text which has the idea of called out by God, formed by Jesus Christ to accomplish a ministry of grace in a very pagan world. Then I think of the word fellowship, fellowship church, fellowship of called out people who have formed uh, a participation with one another to be able to display Jesus Christ to a pagan world. So fellowship, fellowship is a term that is found one time in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continued or they devoted themselves steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of plural, prayers. So when I think of this term, uh, fellowship, I think it's a noun that has a lot of activity to it, and it's found just the one time at the beginning of Acts, but all through the book of Acts, you have this relationship of people meeting needs, people giving, people encouraging, people being incarcerated together, people participating in worship in the Lord's Supper, people seeing God's hand in their lives. A fellowship of called out people who will reach into a pagan society and bring other people into the fellowship, into participation with them. This is the work of God. This is the work of Jesus Christ. But what captured me as I was pulling in on Daniel Road was your middle noun. Fellowship church, fellowship Bible church. As I thought about that particular word, my thoughts had been formed for the last several days around this particular text. But as I looked at your sign, I wonder if you understand the significance, if I understand the significance of that term Bible. 
I'm not asking if you have a Bible. <laughs> I'm not asking, do you read your Bible? I'm not under, asking you what Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch as he ran in the desert. Do you understand what you read? But do you capture the significance of the book? That's what Biblion means, the book that you have in your hand. It's, it's the very core of your identity as a local assembly. For 28 years, you've been calling yourself Fellowship Bible Church, an assembly of called out people by God, formed by Jesus Christ in a pagan society. We participate together so that there'd be strength in our numbers, in our world in which we live, our culture in which we live. But at the very foundation, the very source of what we know about God is within the book that we hold. So when I was thinking about this, it made me think about, well, what is the book? What is the Bible? Just think with me, if you will. God is eternal. The eternal God. The one without boundaries. He is infinite. He is not bound by time, space, matter. In fact, he works outside created order. He is not limited, bound within created order. Here is the eternal God who lives in the eternal present. Everything with him is the present now. He's never learned something chronologically. He knows everything immediately and exhaustively. So the eternal God has eternal thoughts that he makes a decision using an imperfect agent with imperfect language to produce a perfect book, the book. The magnitude of the words I shared with you, it's more than just sitting in a seminary class thinking about, ah, what, how could we come up with some really cool definition of Bible? There's no such thing. The most amazing thing is that God is a revealing God. The self-revelation of God in nouns and verbs and adjectives comes out in what we hold in our Bible, Tom Bilion, the book. So when I look at the Bible and I see this is the very core, the very foundation of who you are. Really, it's the very core of who we all are as believers in Jesus Christ. But for us here today in this room, this is the foundation of your church, the Word of God. Think of how the Word is put together. You have one author by the name of Moses who wrote the first five books. And then you have one author, human author, who wrote the last five books, the Apostle John. And you think with everything in here, what God did is he, is he superintended imperfect agents. He superintends imperfect agents. He gives them nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, putting this all together in written form. And the Spirit superintends every single writer, maybe 45, 45 human writers over a period of 1,500 years, so that everything that comes out of the, through the imperfect means of an imperfect human being and imperfect language is absolutely perfect and without error. That is a miraculous. This is something only God can do. 
But this shows you the decision of our heavenly father, our God, who wants to communicate with human beings. He did not leave this to an angel to write it in the sky. He did not leave this to a very wealthy man standing over here. And you've got the finances, so you do this. His spirit over saw, supervised individuals so that Isaiah sounds like Isaiah with all of his brilliant words. Jeremiah sounds like Jeremiah as he weeps after 40 years of ministry and and not one convert that we know of in the text. Amos sounds like Amos who speaks in staccato terms. The Apostle Paul sounds like the Apostle Paul as he's full of theology. And Peter writes in 2 Peter, Paul just writes things that are just hard to understand. So we're in good company. Or John sounds like John as he writes in one and two syllable words as he closes the canon. It's interesting to me that Moses emphasizes in the book of Deuteronomy as he rehearses the word of God for the people. Listen to him, he says. The secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but those that are revealed belong to you. Grasp them. And John does the very same thing as he writes at the end of his life, as he spends 10 years of his life to put together five letters. Ends with this apocalyptic literature that we call revelation, these visions and images that are so profound to reveal the mind of God and picture form of what the world is going to, what's going to happen in this world. I mean, men and women, when you say off your lips, fellowship, Bible, assembly, assembly of people who've been called out by this eternal God with eternal thoughts, who's been framed by the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace, who is infused by God's spirit, Galatians 4, 4 to 6, who's been infused by God's spirit within you so that you might be able to have some type of powerful dynamic in the world in which we live, not singularly necessarily as much as corporately, these people of Christ making a difference in a world that is without Christ. And at the very core of who we are is we can say this. God has given us his word. He has given us his word. So that when I look at all of the variety of the word of God, when I look at the laws and stories and commands and genealogical records and poetry and proverbs, When I look at the historical narratives that are wrapped up in both the Old and New Testament, the prophetic oracles, when I consider the the biographical sketches and the parables and consider the, the sermons that are recorded and then the last two books of the Bible or from Romans to Revelation are letters. God had a variety of ways to dispense his truth because we are people of variety. Some things are going to appeal more than others, but all is just as important. Wrapped together by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit so that I hold in my hand an English translation that says on this one, ESV. Yours might say something different. But imperfect language. Do you like to read your Bible and just underline wrong commas? Out of place quotation marks? Improper capitalization? The usage of an N dash as opposed to an M dash? That's really exciting. The imperfect language that outcomes the perfect 
mind of God. So would you read with me what I think Walter Liefeld said after teaching for over 30 years at Trinity in Chicago. He wrote a commentary on the pastoral epistles. And when he came to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he writes these words. He says, verses 16 and 17, I'm quoting, verses 16 and 17 are the strongest statement in the Bible about itself. The strongest statement in the Bible about itself. So when I look at this, I ask you this question. Is this significant to you? By significant, I mean this. Is it worthy of your attention? We sang, is he worthy? And we kept saying, he is. He is. But he has revealed himself to us in his word. Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, Hebrews 10. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me, John 5. So he has revealed himself. Think, the great eternal God has reduced himself to human language so that if I blow like this, I feel my breath. So that everything between my hand to my lips is called my intimate zone. So that when God breathes out his word, everything here is the intimate zone of God. To bring you to the very mind of God. I thought maybe it might be good just to illustrate to you from Jesus' lips what it means to go from meaning to is it worthy of my attention. Turn to a Sermon on the Mount. Just one, one or two verses of scripture there and we'll turn back. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, you have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder. That's 521 of Matthew. So we got that, you know, don't take an instrument and put it in your hand and extinguish the life of another. Don't murder. Got it. And then he says this at the end of verse 21b, he says, and whoever murders will be liable to the punishment. Well, what he's thinking about is that in every village in town, Jewish village in town, there's going to be 23 people that are on the the court system. And whenever there's a heinous crime involved, it wasn't a partial group that show up, but all 23 show up. So that when the heinous crime is reviewed, all 23 people of that individual's village or town are going to hear the evidence and they're going to render a verdict. And Jesus says this, you've heard, don't murder. And if you do, you will stand at a court in your village and all 23 people are going to render a judgment against you. They will hear it. You will be exposed for who you are. You are a murderer. You say, but I got that. Okay, what does Jesus do? Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So what is taking place here, men and women, is that Jesus is making it clear that it's not about just somebody holding something in their hand, a dagger in their hand, but it could be that you have a spear in your heart. 
And that before God is just as offensive as someone who would extinguish life because that life is created in the image of God. And so Genesis is very clear. Don't extinguish someone else's life and codified in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But here, when I look at this particular text, Jesus is saying, don't you dare have anger in your heart because anger is murder, 1 John chapter 3. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. But he doesn't stop there. Verse number 23 says, and if you are offering your gift at the altar, this is incredible information. Because he is speaking the Sermon on the Mount to the people of Galilee, and Galilee is about 90 miles south or north of Jerusalem, which is south, especially since they were not going to pass through Samaria, an Orthodox Jew. They were going to go around Samaria, so rather than a three-day journey, four-day journey. So the people of Galilee, he says, you're at the altar. There's only one altar that's there at the temple. And so they're there at the altar and they're getting ready to offer their sacrifice. And it says, if you're offering in the process of offering your gift at the altar and the spirit brings to your mind the idea that your brother has something against you. In other words, in verse number 22, you have anger in your heart towards a brother. That's murder. Now he is moving it and saying, you have caused someone else to have anger in their heart towards you. This is so significant to our God that he says, I want you to leave your gift at the altar, travel the four days back to Galilee, get things right, travel the four days back to the altar, offer your offering, now travel the four days back home. Wow. You see, he knows by these words, if you understand the significance of do not murder, that you're going to get things right before you ever leave town in Capernaum. If you will, back to Second Timothy. There's three statements. See, we're talking about significance. Is it worthy of your attention? There are three statements that the Apostle Paul makes here. Number one, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Number two, and, look at your text. It says and. There's a conjunction here. Tying together what he just stated with what's going to follow. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that, this is a purpose clause. In order that, for the purpose of the man of God becoming complete. And I love the King James translation here, thoroughly furnished to do every good work. Just very briefly, in the few minutes that we have, just think, It says all scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is an interesting word, graphe. Somebody brought that up in the last last, uh, service. Uh, Graphe is found about 51 times, maybe 52 times in the entire New Testament. Every time that word scripture is found, it uh, it is a testament. It's a testament to the fact that there is a composite group of writings that are special that are sourced in God at least twice, 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Peter chapter 3. The word graphe, scripture, relates to New Testament writings, not just Old Testament, but New Testament. So that when I look at this particular statement here, and it says in the text, all scripture is breathed out by God, I notice two things about this. Number one, the subject is scripture. 
Number two, in your English text, it says is. But what's interesting is that there is no verb. (laughs) So that when the writer of the first century is writing and wants to emphasize something, they don't have punctuation like commas and periods and quotation marks, or as we would do in our computer, let's really bold this, let's italicize this, let's underline this, let's expand the font on this. So they're writing, and as they're writing, they don't have the grammatical things that we have, but they want to catch the attention of the one who is reading publicly. Only 15% could read in that first century world their own language. 85% were illiterate. And so as they're getting ready to read, one thing to catch them was to drop the verb out. So the verb is not there, so it says this, all scripture, and then he moves right to a predicate adjective, an adjective that predicates the subject. And what's being predicated is this, it's giving quality to that subject. Here's the subject, scripture. Here's a quality about the scripture, and you have four words in your English text that identify this adjective. Here's the four words, breathed out by God. Scripture, breathed out by God. It's, it's, the idea should go into your mind of what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, where in that particular text, Moses says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, body, breathed life into this body, and man became a living soul, a living being. It was the breath of God that brought life. It's the breath of God that moved this clay from that which is inanimate to very animate. It is the breath of God that causes this one to now stand on his feet and be able to say as Adam, Adam, I am in the image of God. No monkey ever looked in a mirror and said, hmm, my hair is out of place but can you go by a mirror without noticing because you have self-identity? This this is part of who you are. And so here God breathes out. How how does God do that? God, God takes the imperfect means of mankind, 45 authors. He breathes out his word. His Holy Spirit superintends each of these human authors in such a way that the imperfect agent using imperfect means called language and out comes this absolute spotless word. This is amazing. God was overseeing this personally. God's thoughts personally coming from him in adjectives, nouns, the form of language going through the human author. And the human author is writing, being covered by the Spirit of God. I love what 2 Peter 1.21 says, that they were born along by the Spirit of God. I love that phrase. Speaking of the human authors, they were born along like, like the wind in the sails of a sailboat moving the boat across the Sea of Galilee. This is the Spirit totally filling this individual. So this individual moves along and finishes, and when he is done writing, you hold it in your hand and you can say these words, I know God! I know God! Not completely, not exhaustively, But you know God, to know him. Oh, that I might know him, the apostle Paul says, in a greater way. The scripture is breathed out by God. 
the very breath of God. And then you got the word, the conjunction, and, and rather than a verb, he's going to put another predicate adjective. All scripture, breathe thou by God. Took us four English words to get that one word, theopneustos. Got it. And profitable. It is useful. What is it useful for? Well, Jesus, when he prayed, said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is, what's the last word? Thy word is truth. So this is truth because it, it, it's sourced divinely. It's sourced in the one who can even define truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He is the spirit of truth, John 14. So God, who is truth, has allowed his truth to be reduced to human language so that human language can find something useful to live with. And I love the way he lays out the truth here. It's profitable for teaching. That is what is true. For reproof, that is what is not true. And for correction, that is how to get back on the path of truth. For training in that which is right. That's how to stay on the path of truth. So everything that we need in our life, what is true, what is not true. How to get corrected with truth, how to stay on truth. It's all there. It's useful. All scripture breathed out from God. God brings you into his intimate zone so that you might know truth. And what is not truth. I love, you were just, you're going through Hebrews. and I love Hebrews 5. That as you chew on this truth, you're able to discern what is good and what is not good. And then I love the way he ends up. In verse 17, with this purpose clause, in order that. What a, what a great statement. Here is the purpose. So you've got this divine source, all scriptures breathed out by God. You've got this distinctive quality that it, it takes truth and tells you what it is, what it's not, how to be corrected, and how to stay there. And now you have its defined purpose in order that the man of God. And I would just stop right there because you're not going to find this somewhere else in the New Testament. In fact, you have to go to the Old Testament and find that phrase, man of God. And when you turn to the Old Testament, you, you look in the first five books in Torah and you have one man called man of God. His name's Moses. <laughs> and then 11 more times throughout the biblical text of the Old Testament, you're going to find man of God, man of God, man of God. They all have something in common. And what they have in common is this, is that God spoke to them. They were vessels used by God. They literally had the word of God spoken to them by God himself, and then they disseminated that word out to other people, and this person was seen as a man of God, or a man who belongs to God. And so here you have this text that Paul uses a term that's rare, rare, rare. And he is speaking to the entire church. I love the last verse of 2 Timothy 4, verse 22, because it says in the very last verse, the grace be with you. But that's the second person plural. You plural? You know what that's like. Y'all. The grace be with y'all. You know? Those of us that maybe spent time up north and we came down trying to figure out what does y'all mean? That's what he says. Grace be with y'all. He does that in 1 Timothy. He does that in 2 Timothy. He does that in Titus. All three pastoral epistles, he finishes the same way. Grace be with y'all. 
Because he knows that Timothy is going to be sitting right here or Titus over in Crete. But here's Timothy. He's going to be sitting there in the church of Ephesus, a very, very large church, well-known church, a church that's struggling as we heard just a few moments ago from Revelation 2. And here's this church and they're going to hear an audible presentation of second timothy and they're going to hear what they are supposed to do they're going to hear what timothy's supposed to do timothy's going to hear what he's supposed to do and what they're supposed to do and and paul says okay now y'all just dwell in grace so all of you are brought into the intimate zone of god 317 in order that you belong to god You're a man, a woman. You're a son, a daughter of God. And how is that? Because by God's good grace, he brought you into the intimate zone. And now it's just not about meaning. It's not about just opening up my Bible and yawning at five o'clock in the morning and said, what should I read? Now all of a sudden it is... It's, it's beyond meaning. It is significance. What is the author originally saying? What did he intend? Now, let me take that. What does this mean for the life that I am to live before the God who breathed this out, knows my name, knows the hairs on my head or the lack thereof? Hebrew, or Matthew chapter 10. Here it is. Men and women, the scriptures are laid out because we call ourselves fellowship church. But at the core of our identity is that which God has breathed out. He breathed it out so you know truth. He breathed it out so you know what's not truth. He breathed it out so that when you get off track, and we all do, everybody, me too, we get off track, we know how to get back on. He breathed it out so that we stay on Stay on task. And how do I end? Turn back, if you will, to chapter 3, verse 1. My time is almost finished here. Just give me a, a minute. The context is so important with these two verses. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be what kind of times? What does your text say? Happy times? Good times? Difficult? Strange? challenging. Why? For people on the outside are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, and he gives 18 all the way to end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In verse 5, they have sort of a form of God-likeness, you know? Nobody wants to be an independent atheist. They want everybody at least to get good of them. So maybe agnostic is better. But they deny its power. Look at chapter 4, verse number 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time and come when the people on the inside... Well, wait a second. Chapter 3 is about the people on the outside. Now we move to the people on the inside. And they're not going to endure sound teaching. They're going to have itching ears and they're going to accumulate to themselves teachers who will suit their own passions and they're going to turn away from listening to the truth. And they're going to wander off into myths, into myths. So, men and women, very carefully, this is your 28th anniversary. This is significant. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy. It's worthy of your attention. But the attention is not focused on an individual or on the good music or on a good program 
or on something else. The attention focuses on the breath of God that created what we hold in our hand, that as we look at this, it changes us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it transforms us into an image like Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you, you haven't even started the game. You haven't even gotten to the starting blocks. But the beauty is, is you're here, and the reason you're here is because God wants to breathe out into you his word. He wants to cause a transformation to take place, taking away your sin, giving you his righteousness so that you live in Christ so that the wrath of God will never touch you because Jesus bore it on the cross. He bore it on the cross. But for us who are believers, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that you who belong to God are fully outfitted like a wagon on a trip. You're fully outfitted to do every good work. So really what we need at the end of the service is this. On your mark, get set, go. Go do it. Would you stand with me please for prayer? Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for the joy of what both Martha and I sense here in this fellowship. That God, you're at work. Your hand of blessing is upon the elders of this church, the leadership of the church, the deacons of the fellowship, the teachers. But Lord, all of us live in mortal bodies. <laughs> we're, we're subject to the deceit of sin. So, Lord, would you use this day to call us back to your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Call us back to your word that lives and abides forever. The grass will fail, the flowers will fall off, but the word of God stands forever. So, Lord, would you give us that terra firma? Would you place us on that solid ground of your word? Life comes at us in so many ways. But Lord, we're standing firm on your word today. Keep us there, we pray, as a church, as people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What an encouraging word. Thank you so much, Dr. Davey. Will you say our name with us and let's emphasize our middle name together, Fellowship Bible Church. It's the middle name it's our foundation, isn't it? Because it's the Bible that reveals God to us. It's why the pulpit is in the middle of our platform. It's the center of our attention because it's through the Word of God that we find the face of God. He invites us into His intimate space. What a good illustration. The Lord bless you. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. Chili, baked potato, pumpkin pie, singing, testimonies. It's going to be a good evening. God bless you as you go.